0: You are listening to the I Am In podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Sister Bonnie Jensen was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. She graduated from Capitol High School in 1967, attended Ricks College, then Brigham Young University. She's married to Norm Jensen. They have five children and 24 grandchildren. As a young mother, Bonnie co-authored a child development book that was used in a course at Ricks College. Once her children were in school, Bonnie began a career in the insurance industry, where she worked as an agent, regional sales manager, and state sales trainer. Bonnie has fulfilled many service and teaching positions in church and loves working with children and young women. She has traveled throughout the world as a motivational speaker for many churches, businesses, and adolescent centers. She has taught community education courses, organized support groups, and become a peer counselor, where she visits hospitals to counsel with and encourage new amputees. In 2007, Bonnie was chosen as Idaho Mother of the Year by American Mothers Incorporated. During that year, she toured throughout the state speaking at business and civic organizations. Bonnie loves to spend time with her grandchildren, as well as read, garden, cook, and use herbs from her garden to make lotions and soaps. She also loves volunteering in the ESL classes helping refugees learn to read, write, and speak the English language. I'm just going to tell you some stories
1: that have taken place in different seasons of my life and hopefully by the end of the evening I will be able to answer the question that Brother Knight asked for me to speak on which is, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ help your life? Um, When I was just a little girl I had so many questions. I always wondered why was I born? When I was born, why wasn't I born, like at the time of the Savior? Or why wasn't I a pioneer? Uh, why was I born in Idaho? Why wasn't I born in Egypt or Hawaii? And why was why were my parents? Why was I born to my parents? And it, when I was 15, I got my patriarchal blessing. I don't know if you've had the chance to do that yet, but that is something to look forward to. But in that blessing, those questions were actually answered. I was told that I was held in reserve to come at this specific time and place. And that um, my parents had been chosen for me, so it wasn't just a coincidence. I was also told that I was given a specific mission to accomplish. And so I've been thinking about those words of my blessing and preparing for tonight. I have come to the realization that that those statements are true for all of us. Every one of us were held in reserve for over 6,000 years to come now in this dispensation when the church is here. Um, I think that every one of us have been given missions to accomplish on earth, probably more than one. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that that is something that we will discover as we, as we grow. Um, I think that probably one, a common mission that we all have is that we, should, we will be building the kingdom of God, and that's because of when we were born. Um, I'm sure that I didn't understand all those things when I was 15 years old. But I, I, the, the words that I did understand and the rest of my blessing was very influential in the choices that I made the rest of my life. Like what kind of activities I would participate in, what kind of friends I wanted, who I would marry, uh, where I would marry. Those things were influenced by the things that I was taught early on. My husband and I were married in the Idaho Falls Temple 53 years ago. And at that time, it was the only temple in Idaho, believe it or not. But... um, It didn't seem like we were married very many years before we had five little children. And once again, I had so many questions. Um, At that time, there was no internet or Google to ask questions of. There was no um, Facebook and Instagram to compare notes. Um, there There was no texting. We were on our own, except that we weren't on our own. Because we had the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that became a pattern for and a a guide for how we would raise our children. And that pattern was simple. And that was we would love Heavenly Father and Jesus and we would teach our children to do the same thing. And then everything else in the gospel would fit into place. In a blink of an eye, those five children were now in school. And the time had come where I, I knew that we'd better start preparing for the years just not too far down the road when all of those five children would be in college and missions at the same time. So I knew that I needed to do something to add to the family finances, but I felt really strong that I needed to be home when my children were home. And so I started looking for a job that would enable me to do that, that I could set my own time schedule. And that's why I chose the insurance industry, is because it allowed me to do that. And I worked for a company that you may have heard of before. It has this little duck that says, instead of saying quack, quack, it says Aflac. And you've probably seen it advertised. Well, I worked for that company for 16 years. And to begin with, I worked in sales, as, as Brother Knight said. And what that meant is that I would contact business owners and financial officers of businesses and I would persuade them to include the Aflac products in with their benefit package. And to say that I was mildly terrified is an understatement as it was completely out of my comfort zone. And <laughs> Sometimes I would drive into the parking lot of the business I was going to go into and I would just sit in the car and just uh, try to get my emotions under control. And then I'd pull the visor down and I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, Bonnie, you are a daughter of God and you have a royal lineage and you can do that. Because of that, you can do this. And then I would pray like crazy pray that Heavenly Father would give me the courage to walk through that front door and talk to a total stranger about something I knew very little to begin with. But I just made a vow to myself that I would do that every single day. And by the end of that two years, I was the top sales associate. And after a few years, I went into management and I had a sales team. And then I was a trainer, just like Brother Knight was saying. And the only reason I'm saying any of that is to explain to you that I could have not have done any of that without the power of prayer. The, the things that I learned from the time I was just little, being able to give talks from the time I was in primary to young women's to adult helped me have the skills to be able to sit or stand in front of a group of people. But up to this point in my life, I felt like my husband and I had had our trials. And some of them are pretty tough. But I hadn't had the kind of trial that just knocks you down. And it turns your world upside down. And I was about to experience one of those kind of trials. My youngest daughter plays the fiddle, and she had from the time she was this little, oh, that's little, little. Anyway, her dream for her whole life was to go to BYU and to play in the band for the international folk dance team at BYU. And she worked really hard, and she made that dream come true. And so because of that, she toured with them every summer, wherever they went, to different countries. Her last tour, before her senior year, before she graduated, was Australia. And we were like so excited for her. Um, Australia is a place I've always been totally fascinated with. So my husband and I started toying with the idea of maybe joining up with her at the end of her tour. And, uh, because we knew we wouldn't see her play with them ever again. And about that same time, my husband's parents were called on a mission And you will not believe where. Sydney, Australia, of all the places in the world. And it was just like this time in my life where everything just kind of lines up. And I don't know if you've ever been to Australia or not, but it takes a long time to get there. On that very long trip there, I started to feel a little bit sick. My throat was sore, and I kind of had that achy feeling that you have when you know you're coming down with something, but I just figured I was really tired and once I got there I would just rest for a couple days and I'd be good to go. But three days after arriving and having gotten a little worse every day, we knew that I wasn't going to get better unless we got some help. So we, we didn't know where to go, so we just went to like an urgent care facility. And I was di- diagnosed with strep throat. And I was given a big shot of penicillin and the doctor said, go home come back tomorrow and I'll give you another shot, but in the meantime, you should start feeling better. But by the next day, I was even worse. And as the day progressed, my the pain increased and my, my ability to walk and function decreased. And as, as the day progressed, then I began having a hard time breathing, and then I, I couldn't walk by myself, and then I started having fainting spells. My husband thought, okay, we're not we're not going to get through this. We were in trouble. And so he called the paramedics. And by the time they got there, my blood pressure had plummeted. It was so low, and my kidneys had felled. My lungs had collapsed. And they rushed me to a, an emergency room, and I was diagnosed with septic shock or sepsis. And that is a condition that can be con- triggered when there's a lot of bacteria in your system. In my case, it was probably that strep throat. And um, they they put me on kidney dialysis. They gave me huge doses of adrenaline to get my heart pumping again. And they put me on a ventilator, which is a heart-lung machine, put a th- tube down my throat. Um, gave me, put put me into a drug-induced coma where I stayed for two weeks. I had wires and tubes in every limb of my body. It took the doctors a couple of hours to just get me stabilized enough to go to talk to my husband and tell him what was going on. He was waiting in the ER, wondering what was happening. And when they came out, they had some really grim news for him. They told him, Your wife's body has shut down. Her heart, her liver, her lungs, her kidneys, her bowels, even her bone marrow is shutting down. And it is so far shut down that we don't believe we can bring it back. We don't give her even a 2% chance of living. And so they told him, you need to call your family and you need to let them know what's going on and you need to start preparing for the inevitable because she's not going to live. And so, you know, I, I was in a coma, so I wasn't there for that phone call home. But <clears throat> he called my oldest daughter, and he asked her to gather the children together and to start a fast and a prayer for us. And, of course, my children were bewildered. They had just seen me a few days before. We'd had this big going-away party. And here they were being told their mother's in a hospital, she's in a coma, she's uh, in ICU, she's not expected to live. And so my children gathered together in my daughter's living room and knelt in prayer. And during that prayer, every one of them had individually decided and then eventually, collectively and unanimously decided that they were coming to Australia, that they were not going to let their father go through this experience by himself. by himself. Um, the only problem with that is that, well, these four children were all married, just young married couples. One couple was going to school. Um, between the four, the, uh, the four of them, they had six little children. Um, one was seven months pregnant. One was nursing a baby. Um, three of them didn't have passports. None of them had any money. So there was a lot of problems with that plan. So it was the day before internet. So it's amazing that, in, that phone calls went out. And within a few hours, money and miles started being contributed to help fund their trip there. The doctor's office was contacted and the seven-month pregnant one was given the go-ahead to leave. The um, babysitters were arranged for. Um, a senator's office, an Idaho senator that was in B- D.C., their, his office was contacted. And he got involved. And he got that passport process sped up so that within 24 hours the passports were ready which would have never happened. Um, within 72 hours they were there. Now, I was still in a coma. So I, I, every day prior to them arriving, every day I was worse. A little worse, a little worse. My body was shutting down a little further, a little further. This is hard for me to talk to, even after all these years. The day they got there, I started to get better. And even though I was in a coma, I couldn't talk to them. I didn't, I didn't know that they were there. I felt their strength, and I started to get better. And little by little, every day, my vitals were a little better, a little better, a little better. And soon I was beginning to be able to breathe on my own. But just as we were rounding the corner of one crisis, we were coming to a crossroads of another. My family had been watching, first with alarm, and then with concern, and then with horror, they had watched my hands and my feet turn from blue to purple to black. And what had happened is that during that time when my body was shutting down, my heart and lungs were not pumping oxygen to my body. Hands and feet are furthest from your heart. And so it got the least amount of oxygen. And when any part of your body doesn't receive oxygen, the tissue dies. And when tissue dies, sometimes you get gangrene, and that's what had happened to me. That's why they were black. Gangrene can create more bacteria. So the day that I was brought out of sedation, I was presented with a choice, and that was if I wanted to live, I would have to have both of my legs and parts of six of my fingers amputated. And I knew that my life was not done. I still had things to do and I wanted to live. Um, And I made that choice easily. But I think that there are times in our lives that there's a time in our life, maybe it was your baptism, maybe it was your conversion, times that are kind of cemented in our life, in our brain, where we remember every detail. And the time for me was the night before the amputation took place on my legs my family had been there all day and we laughed together and we had cried together and they we, they'd given me a blessing and we would prayed together and it was late and it was time for my family to go and the doctors had gone home for the day and the nurses were at their station and for the first time that day I was alone totally alone and I began to think about the things I love to do I've always loved to do anything active. I I love to snow ski, and water ski, and hike, and fish, and I love to, well, my husband and I love to ballroom dance. We took a ballroom dance class at BYU, and we loved to ballroom dance. But most of all, I love romping with those grandkids. I loved going on treasure hunts with them and jumping on the trampoline with them. And I was beginning to think about all those things and how was I going to do that. And my life began to seem very bleak and very sad. And I began to pray in a way that I have never prayed before. I began to beg Heavenly Father to heal me. I knew He could. I knew Heavenly Father could make a miracle happen. Miracles happen all the time. And I felt like I had enough faith. And I begged Him and I pleaded with Him and I negotiated with Him. And all night that prayer went on, begging Him, reminding Him of good reasons why I should live and how He should heal me. And early in the morning, I could see I, there was a, a window in my bedroom and I, it was dark when that prayer started. And it was, the light was just beginning to come over the hill. When I heard, but more felt, that voice, that still small voice that we hear about and learn about from the time we're just little. And he told me these words, you're going to be okay. And you will walk again. I was told that I had been prepared for this trial. And that I had a new mission. And I was told that he would be with me. That night, I knew that Heavenly Father wasn't going to answer my prayer the way I wanted it to be answered. But I also knew that he was going to be with me. So once the amputations were done on my legs and my feet, that's when my world turned upside down. And I began to really quickly to recognize that i had not been thankful for anything little things that i never thought about for an example my my hands were bandaged for a long time and once those bandages came off they were kind of frozen like in this position and it took months of therapy to be able to make a fist and because of that i couldn't hold a spoon to feed myself i couldn't um Put my contacts in, or brush my own teeth, or get myself dressed, comb my hair, or worst of all, get myself in and out of the bathroom or shower. In fact, I couldn't roll over in bed, and I couldn't even push the button for the nurse to come because I couldn't push the button because my hands were bandaged. Eventually, they hung this little bell in front of my on the top of my bed, and I just have to bat it and hope they heard me. But in the weeks, in the months, and the years that followed, that's when I learned the lessons, the lessons that became so dear to me. And I kind of like to share some of those with you tonight. I learned that any kind of illness and tragedy can be very tutoring and teaches us a lot about ourselves. It teaches us that we're stronger than we ever thought we were. Before this all happened, or after this happened, while I was in the hospital, rather, before I got my first set of legs, I thought to myself, you know, this may not be too bad. I'm going to get some cute ones. I'm going I'm to make sure that they've got little Barbie doll ankles, which, don't look at these because they don't. And, and I'd make sure that they're tan and they're just, and then I'll just snap them on, I'll stand up and I'll walk. Because once you've learned to walk, you know how to walk. But I was pretty naïve. The first time I snapped them on, I screamed out loud. It hurt so bad. It it felt like I was in a vice, and every second I had them on, that vice was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. I just wanted to scream and get them off as quick as possible. and the reason they hurt so bad is because my legs were so swollen and the wounds had not quite healed. And I was having to put them into something very rigid and stand up and put all my weight on these legs. And it was, it sounds like torture and it was, but it was a necessary part of my healing to be able to stand on those legs. And as far as walking, I, my whole center of gravity had changed, so I didn't know what to push, what to pull. Um, after about a month, the big accomplishment for the day would be for, to walk from the bedroom to the, ba- to the kitchen, and then I'd sit down on a chair and, <sighs> and get the pain under control, and then I'd walk back, and that was with the help of a walker. And I used that walker for months and months. And then I graduated with a lot of therapy to two forearm crutches, the ones that come clear up here. And then eventually one forearm crutch, and then a cane. And then eventually I could walk as long as it wasn't very far or if I didn't have to stand very very long. But I remember laying in bed in the morning and thinking to myself, I can't do this. I cannot put those things on every day for the rest of my life. I can't do that. But somehow I did. And I do. Because I am stronger than I thought I ever was. And I would have never known that without this trial. And the reason why, because down deep inside of each of us is a part of us that we may not be very familiar with. I know that I wasn't. Some people call it our soul. We know it as our spirit. And that is where our strength is. That is where our faith is. That is the essence of who we are. And yet, sadly, so much is judged by what's on the outside. We look at others and, and we judge ourselves worsely. We, we look at others and think, Oh, They're so pretty or they're so handsome and I'm not handsome enough or pretty enough or I'm not little enough or thin enough or tall enough or buff enough or anything enough. And before long, we feel like we're not enough. And that honestly is one of the biggest, fattest lies that Satan has for us, is that we're not enough. About a month after I got home from the hospital, I started waking up at night with hair and, and down my neck and hair in my mouth and hair all over my pillow and I'd run my hair my hand through my hair and huge chunks would come out. It was falling out by the handfuls and I was I was devastated. I just I had lost so much already. I could not imagine losing another thing. And once again, I, came, I went back to Heavenly Father begging Him, pleading Him, Please, Heavenly Father, please allow me this last little shred of dignity. Please don't let me lose this too. But once again, Heavenly Father did not answer that prayer in my way. He answered it, but not my way. And the way He did answer it is, well, I had to, first of all, my hair fell out. And I had to wear a wig for a long time. <clears throat> one day, I was sitting in front of this full length mirror, which is something I didn't do very often because it was hard for me to see. But I took my wig off. Oh, and I looked at my hair, and you know, whatever was there was either matted down or sticking straight up. And it was like, it like gave a whole new meaning to a bad hair day. I mean, it, it was bad. And then I took off one leg. And then I took off the other leg and I just looked at this person in the mirror that I did not recognize. And I hated it. And I cried out, Who are you? I don't even know who you are. I don't recognize you. And I don't like what I see. And then, that's when Heavenly Father, through the Spirit of the Holy Ghost, brought into my remembrance Something I knew long ago, but needed to be reminded. For just a moment, he let me see just a glimpse of that spirit. And what I saw was beautiful. Whole and beautiful, as are each of you. What we see on the surface of the mirror is a very small part of who we are. I learned that we are so much more loved than we think we are. Before this all happened, I lived in a wonderful ward. But um, for some reason, I just did not feel a part of it. I didn't feel like I had any friends. I felt like I was kind of in this ward that had this big invisible circle, and I was on the outside of it. I don't know if you ever felt that before. But I was on the outside of the circle. But I'm telling you, I was wrong so very wrong. When I came home from the hospital, this ward that I did not think loved me was there to welcome me home. Ramps had been built. With the help of my daughters, schedules had been arranged um, to have somebody be with me constantly. My husband had to go back to work. My tomatoes were picked. My lawn was mowed. My laundry was done. Somebody, there was just always somebody with me helping me. This ward that I thought didn't love me was there to love me back to health. That invisible circle was in not there. If it was there at all, it was because I had put it there. Because I had not reached out to them to love them. They had loved me all along. I learned that our lives are so intertwined in ways that we just can't even imagine. And when I was in the hospital, I got a lot of emails and a lot of uh, notes and letters. And one day, I got this letter from a lady that a sister who had been I'd been in a ward with years before when our children were just babies. I always. Totally admired her. She was a teacher, like a Relief Society teacher or Sunday school. I can't remember, but amazing, totally amazing teacher. And um, anyway, she her letter went something like this: "Bonnie, I want to thank you for something you did for me years ago that I've never told you." And she told she reminded me about this encounter that we had one night in a grocery store, and. I was teaching a class in Young Women's the next day. And when I saw her, I I said, Eileen, I am so glad to see you. I'm teaching a class tomorrow, and whenever I teach, I think of you, because you're my benchmark. I want to be a teacher like you. And then I went on my way. But unbeknownst to me, Eileen was going through some really hard stuff, some serious medical problems, and some serious depression. She was feeling unvalued, unneeded, unloved, low, and depressed. And my comment was a turning point in her life. And now here I am in a hospital bed. I can't roll over. I'm bandaged completely. I'm feeling about as low and unused, useful and unvaluable as a person can be. I wondered if I ever would be able to be of value to anybody again in my life. And here she was lifting me up at a time I desperately needed it. It helped me to know that no matter how bad things are in my life or anybody's life, you can be of value to somebody. You can be a light in their life. I learned that A lot of times in life things don't turn out the way we think they're going to. Um, And it's really helpful to learn to be flexible, to learn to do things in a different way. I learned to do that. I also learned to accept prayers that weren't answered and accept the Lord's way instead of my way. Um, When I got home from the hospital there were a lot of people asking about my welfare. And I had a little granddaughter that was about five at the time. And a neighbor had asked her, Honey, how's your grandma? And Emily, she put her hands on her hip and she says, Well, she's short. (laughs) And Emily could have said so many things. Emily could have said, Well, my grandma doesn't have any legs. Or she could have said, my grandma can't walk. Or she could have said, my grandma's in a wheelchair, but Emily said, she's short. And that is flexible flexible—a way of looking at things. I learned that it's okay to cry. Crying helps get the hurt out and the sad out of our lives. But what I didn't know is how valuable laughter could be and how therapeutic. And I learned that from this sweet, sister who came to visit me. Now this sister is so quiet and shy. And we had this wonderful talk, and it was before I got prosthetic, so I was laying on the couch. And I, um, the, the ward had been cautioned not to stay very long, because I was still really weak. And after a, about an hour, she looks at her watch, and goes, oh Bonnie, I have stayed so long, I've just talked your legs up. <laughs> Oh my, I can't believe I said that. And then she just started turning red everywhere. And I just bust out laughing. It was the funniest thing I had heard. And I laughed and I laughed. And it, oh, she gave me such a gift that day. I hadn't laughed for a long time. And it felt so good. Those endorphins were great. And I learned just how valuable it is to be able to laugh, especially at ourselves. And I've had that opportunity a lot of times since in my life. So I'll tell you about one of them. Um, <laughs> I about six months after I came home from the hospital, I moved to a different ward, and this new ward didn't know about my situation. Very few people, and so I was in sacrament meeting, and I was sitting on the back row, and it was a missionary farewell. I remember that it was so spiritual and good. Next to me was my daughter, and next to her was my husband. And on this side of me was a little boy, about 10, that I didn't know. And on the inside of my leg is a button, a release button. That's how I get my legs off. It kind of opens up a valve that makes it so I can take my leg off. And and those legs, they were some kind of, anyway, those legs, the button stuck out. And I went to cross my leg and and that leg literally flew across my daughter's lap, landed with a thunk at the floor of my husband and I think he was asleep because he jerks like this. And this little boy, he is gone. and then he yells out Holy cow. <laughs> you know, and oh my goodness, I reached over. You know, what can you do? I reached over and I put my leg on. And then I said, Don't you hate it when that happens? And he's gone, his eyes got big all over again. <laughs> and then my daughter and I got the giggles. And we, we started trying to keep quiet. And this poor mother of this little boy thought we were crying and she's reaching over pat and i like i'm so sorry i'm sorry i finally got my control of myself and i said it's okay it's really funny so you know sometimes you just have to laugh about life i learned that no matter how bad things are in life you do not have to look very far to find something to be thankful for When I was a young girl, there was this girl in my ward that had cerebral palsy. She was a young adult, brilliant woman, went on to become an attorney. And um, she, because of her condition, her speech was slurred, and she walked with difficulty. But one Sunday, she gave a talk in church, and her talk was on gratitude. And it pierced my heart. Um, in her talk she told a poem and that poem just I, anyway I just went up to her afterwards and I asked for a copy of that poem and I asked her if I and I took that poem home and I memorized it and that poem became my personal pep talk And I used it in every season of my life. When I was a young college student in Rexburg where it's cold and windy and blowy and snowy and I would be walking home from school freezing to death and burdened with homework and sad and lonely, I'd recite that poem to myself. When I was a mom, a young mom, overwhelmed with the little children, I'd recite that poem to myself. When I was a mom of teenagers and overwhelmed, I'd recite that poem to myself. No matter what season, I was so, I, I, that was my personal pep talk and creed. And it's rather ironic that this particular talk, uh, poem was my talk, my pep talk. And I'd like to, if it's okay, to share that poem with you. It goes like this. Today, upon a bus, I saw a lovely maid with golden hair. I envied her. She was so pretty, and I wished I were as fair. And then she rose to leave, and I saw her hobble down the aisle. She had one foot and wore a crutch, but as she passed, a smile. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two feet. The world is mine. And then I went to buy some sweets. The lad who sold them was so kind. It's nice to talk with folks like you. You see, he said, I'm blind. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two eyes. The world is mine. And then I walked on down the street and saw this child with eyes of blue. He stood and watched the others play. It seemed he knew not what to do. I said, why don't you join the others, dear? He stared straight ahead without a word, and then I knew he couldn't hear. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two ears. The world is mine. With feet to take me where I'd go. With eyes to watch the sunsets glow. With ears to hear what I would know. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I'm blessed indeed. The world is mine. I want to tell you that this experience has made every sweet and dear thing in my life sweeter and dear. It has opened my eyes to be thankful for things that I never thought to be thankful for before. And so, I'd like to go back to that question that I gave you at the very beginning. How has the gospel of Jesus Christ blessed your life? And I would begin by saying that through the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, he has given me strength beyond my own. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I've been given the Holy Ghost who has whispered to me and brought me comfort in my darkest hours, who has brought things to my remembrance that I needed to know. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have a community of brothers and sisters who are there for me at a moment's notice, a community that I worship with And pray with and partake of the sacrament with, and who love me. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am learning to be able to accept the Lord's answers to my prayers and lean into Him instead of leaning into my own understanding. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have learned or am learning to look for His hand in my life. And to be grateful for it. And it's there every day. Because of the gospel of, Greece, of, Greece, of Jesus Christ, I have had a pattern and a guide all my life to show me which way. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am sealed eternally to my husband. And although I've not spoken much of the temple tonight in because of the time, the temple is one of my greatest blessings. I've been able to work there for the last 12 years and every time I go, the Spirit envelops me as I walk in. It is in the temple that we learn how to get back home to Heavenly Father. Everything that I have spoken of tonight are gifts that our Heavenly Father freely gives to all of us and He wants us to have. They are the tools to help us get back home. And because of Him and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have a way back home. Tonight, in closing, I just want to bear testimony and witness of a loving Heavenly Father and a brother, Jesus Christ that love us more than we can possibly comprehend. And I bear that testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.